Hiya, welcome to another episode of Dark and Spooky, a horror podcast with me, Miss Dark and Spooky, aka The Girl Next Door. Today's episode is going to be Unsolved Mysteries Part 4. So are we all comfortable? Are we ready? Let's get into them. Information leading to the recovery of stolen works. 
On April 12, 1981, in Keddie, California, the Sharp family and some friends went to sleep inside cabin 28 at the Keddie Resort Lodge. Sheila Sharp would wake up to find her mother, Sue, her brother, Johnny, and their family friend, Dana Wingate, brutally murdered inside the cabin, while her 12-year-old sister, Tina, was missing from the scene. Sheila only escaped the murders by sleeping at a friend's cabin next door. Surprisingly, they found Sheila's two younger brothers, Greg and Rick, and their friend, Justin Smart, asleep in another bedroom inside cabin 28 and safe. Tina's remains would be found by anonymous tip on the third anniversary of the murders. Her skull was found 50 miles away from Keddy in a different county. There were only two suspects that the police examined, Marty Smart and his roommate, Beau Bobday. Marty Smart was married to Marilyn Smart and there were parents to Justin Smart. Marty was apparently an abusive husband. Since Sheila Sharp had just escaped an abusive relationship herself, there were reports that she was giving Marilyn some counselling. When Marty found out that Sheila was interfering in his marriage, he reportedly went ballistic. Soon after the murders, Marty left Keddie for Reno, Nevada. Law enforcement felt that the murders took more than one person to conduct, which is why they took Babade into questioning as an accomplice. Babade was also an ex-con. Despite there being so much more to the case, the investigation oddly stopped there. There was evidence that seemingly went unnoticed and people of interest that were not examined properly. The murderer of the Keddy crime has not been identified and the case remains unsolved. She was only wearing a flannel nightgown, blue wooden woolly socks and a red down jacket. Wood was one of the Hollywood's biggest stars up until the time of her death, with roles that included Miracle on 34th Street and West Side Story. Eerily, Wood's mother had given the fear of dark water to her daughter because a fortune teller had prophesied that she would die of drowning. As a child, it was reported that her fear of water was so great she was even afraid to wash her hair and had reoccurring nightmares about drowning. Wood had been working on the film Brainstorm at the time, along with actor Christopher Walkden, and was invited to join her and her husband, Robert Wagner, on their yacht named The Splendour. According to the captain and family friend, Dennis Devon, Wood had become infatuated with Walkden during filming and Wagner had flown to the movie set to make sure he wasn't making a fool of himself over this. The group left on the boat around 12 in the afternoon on November 27th, 1981. 
everyone on the boat, including the captain, had been drinking for, for much of the weekend. On the Friday night, Wood and Wagner had argued to the point where Davin became concerned and asked Walton to get involved. Walton refused to intervene and is quoted saying, never get involved in an argument between a man and his wife. Davin ended up taking Wood to shore that night using the ship's dinghy, the Prince Valiant, and they slept at a hotel in Avalon. The next morning, they returned to the yacht and Wood agreed to spend the rest of the weekend on board. That afternoon, Wood and Walton went to shore to begin drinking at Doug's Harbour Reef and Saloon. They had much to drink and their waitress reported Wood not eating much of her dinner and stumbling out the restaurant when they were done. Walton and Wood boarded the dinghy and went back to the yacht around 10pm. A witness from the Harbour Patrol said they heard Wood scream about something but they brushed it off because she was intoxicated. Witnesses from a nearby boat claimed they heard shouts around midnight. However, there was a party going on nearby so they thought it was from the party and didn't intervene. One of the witnesses, John Payne, said he heard a woman scream, Help me! Someone! Help me! Coming from the stern of the Splendour and potentially from a dinghy. He then thought he heard a man's voice say, OK, honey, we'll get you. But the tone was so mocking, which is why he thought the cries were associated with the party. According to Wagner, there was a non-violent argument that broke out between him and Walton over politics. Wood wasn't involved and quickly became bored and assumedly went to bed. However, Wagner didn't realise she was missing until he went to go kiss her goodnight around 1.30am. The Coast Guard was alerted and Wood was found floating six hours later about a mile away from the yacht with a dinghy not too far from her. Los Angeles County Coroner Thomas Noguchi ruled the case of her death to be an accidental drowning and hypothermia. According to the coroner, Wood had been drinking and she may have slipped while trying to reboard the dinghy. Wood's sister, Lana, expressed doubts alleging that Wood could not swim and had been terrified of water all her life and that she would never have left the yacht on her own by dinghy. To this day, her death remains a mystery.
In order to identify the boy, the body was kept in the morgue whilst visitors from 10 different states tried to look for identifiable marks to avoid to no avail. Police spent around 400,000 flyers out of the boy to police stations, post office and courthouses all over the country. Even the, America, the American Medical Association sent out a description of the boy, but it led nowhere. The police compared the boy's footprints to hospitals in the area and even took fingerprints, but no record showed that the boy ever existed. In 2016, the Nation, National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children released a forensic facial recognition of the victim and added him to their database. Unfortunately, the boy has never been identified and the case still remains open. of Boogeyman, only attacking at night and was rumoured to be responsible for 12 attacks and 6 deaths. To make this mystery even more chilling, he seemed to only creep on his victims whilst they slept. Oddly enough, the Axeman never used his own tools and only used what he could find in the victim's home, usually an axe, which he then would leave at the scene of the crime. The majority of the Axeman's victims were Italian immigrants or Italian Americans. Many media outlets drew a frenzy from this aspect of the crimes, even suggesting mafia involvement despite the pure lack of evidence. Other crime analysts have suggested that the Axeman killings were related to sex and that the murderer was perhaps a sadatist, specifically seeking female victims. Other theories include that the Axeman killed male victims only when they blocked his attempt to murder women, supported by cases in which the women of a household was murdered but not the man. A less likely theory is that the serial killer committed the murders in an attempt to promote jazz music, suggested by a letter that was the murderer himself was rumoured to write, which stated that he would spare the lives of those who played jazz in their homes. The Axeman was never identified and the murders remain unsolved. George, Jenny and four of their children managed to escape. The remaining children, 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, 9-year-old Louis 
eight-year-old Jenny and the five-year-old Betty still remained in the house. Between the five of them, they shared two bedrooms located upstairs. George broke back into the house to save the rest of the children, but the staircase was on fire. When he went outside to retrieve his ladder, it was missing from its normal spot. Plus both of his coal trucks, which he usually used, which he was going to use to stand on top of, were strangely not starting. Marion, one of the children who escaped the fire, ran to a neighbour's house to phone the fire department, but the operator didn't pick up. When another neighbour called, the operator failed to pick up the phone again. That same neighbour actually drove to town and found the fire chief in person, F.J. Morris, and told him about the fire. However, even though the fire station was located a mere 2.5 miles away from the house, the firefighters didn't reach the Sodder home until 8am, seven hours after the fire began. When they got there, the house was literally burnt to ash. Authorities sifted through the ash to try and find the remains of the missing five children, but nothing was found, and they were presumed dead due to the fire. Morris suggested that the fire was so hot that it literally cremated the children's bodies, including their bones. While that theory sounds reasonable, it's not entirely accurate, because even when flesh is burned away, bones are typically left behind. Additionally, there was no smell of burning flesh reported during or after the fire. The cause of the fire was deemed to be bad wiring and the five missing children were issued death certificates. Soon after the fire, George and Jenny began to suspect that their children were not dead, but instead kidnapped and the fire was deliberately set as a diversion. In fact, George had the wiring checked earlier that fall by the power company which had deemed the wiring safe working order. While the fire was in progress, a woman came forward and said she saw all the five missing children peering from a passing car. Another woman who was staying at a Charleston hotel had seen the children's photos in the newspaper and said she had seen four of the five a week after the fire. The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of the Italian extraction, she said in a statement. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and wouldn't allow it. From the 1950s until Jenny Sodder's death in the late 1980s, the Sodder family maintained a billboard on State Route 16 with the pictures of the five vanished children and offering a reward for information. The last known surviving Sodder child, Sylvia, still doesn't believe her siblings perished in the fire. To this day, they've never been found. receiving threatening mail that has haunted them ever since. The letters were from Columbus but had no return address. 
they accused school bus driver Mary Giuseppe and the school superintendent of having an extramarital affair. One of the letters was even addressed to Mary's husband, Ron, that threatened his life if he didn't put a stop to the affair. In 1977, Ron died in a suspicious one car, cra car crash that involved gunshots. However, when the sheriff ruled the death an accident, other residents of Circleville began receiving letters accusing the sheriff of covering up the so-called accident. Ron's sister's husband, Paul Fresher, was convicted of writing the letters after there was an attempt to murder Mary via a booby-trapped rigged pistol. Even after he was thrown behind bars, the Circleville letters continued throughout the 1970s and the early 1980s. Fresher even received one in prison. In 1994, Fresher was released and he claimed his innocence until his death in 2012. The true identity of the Circleville letter writer remains unknown. Boulevard in Westfield, New Jersey. They claimed the six-bedroom house was their dream home and located just a couple of blocks away from Maria's childhood home in one of the top 30th safe, safest cities in the United States. Three days after closing the sale, before the Brodus's family ever begun to move in, a letter arrived in their new mailbox. The letter was addressed to the new owner, in big, big clunky handwriting. The typed letter reads as follows. Dearest new neighbour at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighbourhood. How did you end up here? Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? 657 Boulevard has been the su subject of my family for decades now and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I've been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s and my father watched it in the 1960s. It's now my turn. Who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I'm in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I'm in one. Look out many of the windows in 657 Boulevard are all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. The letter also mentions specifics about the Brothers family. You have children. I have seen them. The letter continues. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call them and draw them to me. At the bottom of the letter, the author used a curvaceous font to sign The Watcher. 
After receiving the letter, the brother's family reached out to the previous family who had sold them the house, John and Andrea Woods. They stated that during the 23 years of living at 657 Boulevard, they had never received a letter like that except once a few days before they were getting ready to move out of the house. The Woods family also stated that they never felt watched in the two decades that they had lived in at the house and in fact rarely felt the need to lock their door at night. While they thought the note they received was odd, they threw the note away without much concern. Still, the two families went to the police with the letter and an investigation was opened. The police warned the families not to tell anyone about the letters, including their neighbours, who were now all suspects. Two weeks later, even though the brothers' family still hadn't moved in, they received a second letter with even more chilling specifics about the family, including the children's birth order and nicknames. The watcher also asked, will the children sleep in the attic or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I will know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom, then I can plan better. Several weeks later, the brothers' family had put their plans on hold to move in. A third letter arrived saying, where have you gone to? 657 Boulevard is missing you. By the end of 2014, the case had stalled. There was no digital trail and the mental effects were taking a toll on the brothers' family. There were no fingerprints and no way to place somebody at the scene of the crime. Only six months after they received the letters, they decided to sell the home. 657 Boulevard has been sold and is currently off the market, whilst the watcher's identity still remains a mystery. was attending a Mike Tyson boxing match. After the match, Tupac left with the CEO of Death Row Records, Suge Knight. Upon the departure of the match, Tupac and his bodyguards got into a fight with a Compton-based Southside Crips gang member Orlando Anderson in the lobby of the MGM. After the fight was broken up, Tupac and Knight left in Knight's car with Tupac's entourage following in cars behind them. While stopped at the intersection of Flamingo and Caval, a white Cadillac pulled up to the passenger side of Knight's car and shot out of the window, hitting Tupac four times and grazing Knight in the head with a bullet fragment. In 2014, retired LVPD Sergeant Chris Carroll revealed that he was the first police officer at the scene. According to Carroll, when he opened the door, Tupac fell out of the car covered in blood and Carroll asked, Who shot you? Tupac took a deep breath and only proclaimed explicit words at the police officer before slipping into unconsciousness. Tupac was then taken to the UMC and placed on life support and into a medically induced coma. 
On September 13th, 1996, six days after the shooting, Tupac died as a result of his injuries at the age of 25. Las Vegas police never arrested anyone in conduction with the murder. They also failed to follow up with Yaki Kapida, a member of Tupac's entourage, who claimed he could identify the assailant. Unfortunately, Kapida was murdered only two months after the infamous shooting before he could be interviewed. To this day, no one has been claimed as a suspect and no arrests have been made. a British American ship called the Mary Celeste was found abandoned and floating in the Atlantic Ocean. It was found to be perfectly seaworthy and with its cargo fully intact, except for a lifeboat, which it appeared had been boarded in an orderly fashion. But why? We may never know because no one on board was ever heard from again. The Mary Celeste set sail from New York bound from Genova, Italy in November 1872. The ship was manned by Captain Benjamin Briggs and seven crew members, including Briggs' wife and their two-year-old daughter. Supplies on board were set to last for six months and they were luxurious items on board, including a sewing machine and an upright piano. Historians and commentators generally agree that to abandon such such a worthy ship, some extraordinary and alarming circumstances must have arisen. However, the last entry on the ship's daily log reveals nothing unusual, and inside the ship all appeared to be in order. Conspiracy theories over the years have included mutiny, pirate attack and even a giant octopus or sea monster attack. However, the cause behind this ghost ship remains unsolved. social media and you're not following me i am on facebook and instagram under the same name which is dark underscore and underscore spooky 666 if you are following me and on facebook please also just do me a little favor and leave me a star rating and review over there it will really help me out with the facebook algorithm if you do have your own ghost stories or experiences or movie recommendations or any mysteries of your own that you've come across don't hesitate to contact me 
darkandspooky13 at gmail.com. Lastly, don't forget the book club is coming soon. So if that is something that you think that you'd want to get involved with, don't hesitate to contact me again. Um, it's basically a monthly book club. We will meet up to three times a week online. £6.66 a month. Um, 8 till 10pm UK English time. We will all read the same book and participate online. So we'll, we'll all read a little bit of each chapter and then discuss as we go on. First two months, the books have been chosen. But after that, once we are in a rhythm, we will decide between us which book we will do the month after, after that, etc. Last thing to say is stay spooky and see you on the next one. Thank you.